my name is Justin Clue, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And are you ready to cry? Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Not laugh. Which you usually do listening to this podcast. No, because today we're going to be talking about comedians who also did dramatic roles. You know, enough of that silliness, enough mm-hmm. of stepping on a banana peel and, <laughs> and having a ladder fall on you. <laughs> yep. It's time to elevate your craft. It's time to do serious art. Mm-hmm. Let's cycle through all those chestnuts that people like to say that comedy is actually hard, drama is easy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> because that's what always comes up when you hear like, oh, a comedian is taking a dramatic role. They'll often say, oh, but I find that easier to do yeah. because... It's less demanding and the actual reaction in an audience is less immediate. To be a comedian or to be a comic actor is to already be a great actor. (laughs) There you go. Yes. That's what they would all say. Just ask, you know. Jerry Lewis. Uh, Yeah. Or a Carrot Top. uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Carrot Top? What is a dramatic Carrot Top? I don't know. I was just trying to think of comedians and he was the first that came to mind. Uh, (laughs) He's the first comedian you think uh, when you think of comedians? Yeah. Because he's funny. He's got a a carrot head. And he does props. He has a big trunk that he pulls stuff out of. And he's really buff. He's worked (laughs) out a lot. Not back in the day in Chairman of the board his true dramatic role i'm sure we probably came up with this topic thinking about adam sandler and uncut mm-hmm. gems because this is a particularly extreme example and i feel like over the last few months there's been a lot of sandler discourse adam sandler in the critical imagination mm-hmm. has been synonymous much like michael bay has been with a certain kind of lowest common denominator you know he's the ultimate talented guy who has squandered his talents in uh, lazy, slipshod comedies. And every film bro around could be like, oh, did you see this movie to their date? Punch Drunk Love? Adam Sandler. Serious. <laughs> yeah. But but I've seen much uh, reappraisal of his of his comedies. Oh, God. I just watched You Don't Mess With The Zohan. Is it not? P.U. I've actually never seen it. Yep. Uh, but, An hour and 53 minutes, Will. <laughs> ooh. Yep. But I definitely see people like talking about how actually the Adam Sandler comedies are, are funny. Mm-hmm. I've seen that as a popular kind of contrarian take. I'll give you Happy Gilmore and nothing else. Is it a contrarian take? Because look at those box office numbers. <laughs> yeah. Also, you know, when I was a kid, uh, I I was a precocious child who read Entertainment Weekly and knew that the right... Subscribe to Entertainment subscribed. Weekly. <laughs> and so, you know, when I was 12 or 13, I knew that the correct position was to be against Adam Sandler. Yes. And and to be in favor of something like, oh, I don't know, the Christopher Guest movies. <laughs> I was going to say Jim Carrey, yeah. <laughs> which you were also a big fan of, and is also an example of the comedian mm. who wants to do real roles. Yeah, so... Uh, Jim Carrey, I think, is a formative example for us mm-hmm. uh, because he was the guy who, you know, we were kids. We were going to see his comedies, laughing at him. Then all of a sudden, along comes you know, the majestic, the, or the Truman Show, mm-hmm. or something, or or Man on the Moon, mm-hmm. where all of a sudden a generation of kids knew who Andy Kaufman was. Yeah, uh, or even like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, right. where you get the serious Jim Carrey. But I think there was always something about Jim Carrey, like he's the definitive, I think, example of this because he was somebody who. Really really seemed to seek legitimacy mm-hmm. through his dramatic movies. He was somebody who, in all of his interviews and all of his kind of shameless campaigning for Oscars, which never came, uh, he, he seemed to think that this, he seemed to convey the idea that, okay, but this is what I really want to do. This is the elevated stuff. But I think that a lot of comedians who do the do that serious acting thing there is that kind of like sense of desperation around them because, Mm -hmm. oh, you know, comedy is a lowest common denominator. What's really serious Mm -hmm. is 
Oscars and drama. Like, you get that feeling in every Jerry Lewis interview where he's like, oh, my real personality is very serious and analytical when, you know, I just play a jokester for the screen. Right. <laughs> and it's kind of sad because, you know, comedy, if you're really good at it, just be happy with it. Well, something I realized this week as we were watching some examples, mm-hmm. uh, I actually didn't realize it this week. I've always thought it. Uh, <laughs> yes. But I'm just going to yeah. manufacture some drama okay. for the sake of this podcast. Something I realized this week was that <laughs> when comedians do dramatic roles it's often not so far from their comedic persona it's, yes it's, i agree with it's, you it's a mild torquing of it mm-hmm. sometimes you may see them in a slightly more sinister or damaged light because in many you know as i always said when i was on the vaudeville circuit <laughs> comedy and tragedy are two sides of the same coin mm-hmm. uh, and so uh, happy gilmore obviously not that far from punch drunk love mm-hmm. uh, sandy wexler not too far <laughs> from uh, howard ratner yep that's right and with Jim Carrey, I guess uh, The Mask, not too far from uh, Truman. Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm losing track <laughs> You're losing of it. it, yeah. <laughs> I mean, or, or uh, Jerry Lewis. Perfect yeah, example. that's right. The Nutty Professor, not far from uh, Jerry Langford. I would mm-hmm. argue Jim Carrey is kind of out of that only because his dramatic persona is almost like erasing all of the animation that we associate with him. Mm-hmm. So the weight of his performance can be the kind of emptiness that we expect from him sometimes he uh, overcompensates in his dramatic performances mm-hmm. i find like say, <laughs> number 23 number 23 <laughs> yep. but for example some of the movies that we watch for this podcast like big fan the pat oswald starring serious performance i think that is pat oswald perfectly cast in that role because it's just a different version of what he's known for through his comedy albums and stuff like that. Well, this was, a, I think, maybe an interesting selection because Patton Oswalt at this time was, I guess, more of a niche comedian. Mm-hmm. I loved Patton Oswalt. Yeah. Um, I listened to his album, like, Werewolves and Lollipops. Yeah, yeah. He was one of those, like, geek comedians, right? Like, yeah. he liked all of the stuff that you liked. Right. And he could also approach it in not just a funny way, but also a way that could deconstruct, like, what it is. He had that famous routine of talking about the Star Wars prequels. <laughs> That's right. The climax was, oh, you like Angelina Jolie? She gives you a big boner? Well, here's John Voight's ball sack. <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't want to know where the things I like come from. I just want the things that I like. And you know, it's funny saying that because when I hear it now, it's like every comedian does that stuff mm-hmm. now. Every comedian is like, oh, he thinks Greedo shot first or, you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, a corny geek comedy like that. But at the time it was somewhat novel. And wasn't Patton it? Oswalt doesn't do that anymore yeah. in his standups. Mm-hmm. Like that was a niche that he kind of filled in a way that you sometimes hear other like geek comedy stuff like that. And it's like, oh my God. Mm-hmm. All right. And you never get that sense from Patton Oswalt. It always seems to be coming from a place of genuine love (laughs) now with big fan he plays a somewhat i I don't think sinister is the right character. no i don't think he is either disturbing character Mm -hmm. like a a pitiful character uh because he wasn't a particularly huge mainstream star at this time uh, you know i think i think the movie was basically rapturously received by those Mm -hmm. who received it but it wasn't like jim carrey and the cable guy where a lot of people were really turned off by it because it seemed it seemed to be taking all the characteristics 
uh, all, all the stuff they liked about him mm-hmm. and showing it in this different light and making it seem repulsive. Mm-hmm. I mean, Pat Oswald, he has a lot of credits. He was on a sitcom for a long time mm-hmm. as the funny best friend, mm-hmm. but he was never like a headlining uh, comedy star in movies in the way that somebody like Jim Carrey was. His biggest one is uh, Ratatouille, where he did the voice of the rat. So I would say that Big Fan, unlike some of the movies we've talked about, doesn't really subvert his persona. Mm-hmm. I would agree. Uh, I think that it's kind of an extension of his persona and the way that he acts and the kind of likability you get from his comedy set mm-hmm. he has in this movie. Because if this movie were made now, I think it would be very different mm-hmm. because like the protagonist of this film, Pat Oswald himself, is a big football fan. He loves his team, but it's never portrayed in like like bad like or destructive. I, I know. I know what you're thinking. of. Mm-hmm. You're thinking of this would be like the Joker. It would be today. like the Joker or, or it would be weighted with a lot more political significance. Or people often compare it to Taxi Driver, right. where it's kind of like that. But Travis Bickle is a damaged individual in a much more archway than Patton Oswalt is presented in Big Fan. So, uh, yeah, in Big Fan, he plays a low-ambition man, I guess in his mid to late 30s, mm. who lives in Staten Island with his mother. Uh, he works as a uh, parking lot attendant, and he spends his evenings listening to his favorite sports team on the radio, calling into a sports radio talk show where he delivers these monologues that he's written. And uh, sometimes he meets with his friend. They go to the stadium and and they party with all the fans outside the stadium. But of course, they can't afford tickets to the game. Mm. So they sit in the parking lot with their little portable TV and watch the game. And this team represents his entire life, his entire identity. And he doesn't seem particularly unhappy. That's the difference between all the movies like The Joker or Taxi Driver (laughs) is that... The only kind of tension comes from the way the people in his family react to him. Like, hey, why why don't you do this? Like, why don't you get a girlfriend? Why don't you get out of the house? And it's not portrayed as like, oh, woe is me. My life sucks. And this is the only joy I have in my life. He vocalizes it many times that like, oh, I'm happy. Like, I'm happy doing what I'm doing. (laughs) And it's only when a turn of events, not really triggered by him, that the conflict of the movie is that his favorite football player beat him up. And because of that, the football player has been suspended and his team, in his perception, is losing because of that. Mm -hmm. So what does he do and what is the conflict and how does he act as a person in this situation? There's also a suspenseful last act of the movie involving his rivalry with another loudmouthed sports (laughs) fan played by the great Michael Rappaport. That's right. (laughs) Which I heard him on the radio that appears throughout the film, and I was like, this is a pretty low-budget film. They couldn't have a budget for Michael Rappaport (laughs) of bamboozled fame. That's right. (laughs) But no, he does show up, because it's building to this, like, taxi driver-like big climactic moment of violence. So I I love Patton Oswalt in this movie, Mm -hmm. of course. He's he's great in the movie. He looks uh, a little little strange on screen. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, you can imagine why he was he would never I, I don't think Patton Oswalt would ever become like a huge mainstream uh, a Jim Carrey like because proportionally he doesn't look he doesn't he make sense he looks like the comedy best friend yeah that's what he yeah. looks like he doesn't look like Chris Farley no uh, or or a well, Belushi I think that Chris Farley and Jim Belushi they also had the like big physicality that yeah. like that's what people remember about them and Pat Oswalt has never been one of those guys but he has been a very effective supporting actor mm-hmm. playing 
you know, guys who just uh, losers. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> he he's empathetic. The way that he talks, there's like a sense of kind of like that he feels what he's saying, but he's also frustrated and he also can't express himself or get the answers that he wants. And he has great range as an actor. He too. does have great he can range. Play as many an actor. different kinds of losers. <laughs> yeah, he does because he does it here in Big Fan, and it's one of those movies that it's like that like high wire act of you need to care about this character even though you don't agree with the decisions that he's making and he is a genuinely kind of abrasive and selfish Mm -hmm. guy yeah Um, i mean like could have Patton oswald played richard jewell in the recent clint eastwood in a different universe i wonder Mm -hmm. you know i'm not i'm not positive because there's something i don't likable about Patton oswald no because there's something a lot likable about paul walter hauser too okay but Maybe it's just because I, you know, like all the comedians we talk about in this show, you bring a lot of baggage, mm-hmm. or at least I do for Patton Oswalt. So, so like, you, oh, there would be that baggage w- there. Well, for me, I'm actually not, maybe I'm contradicting my argument mm-hmm. from earlier where I was saying there was no baggage. <laughs> yeah. But it's like, I know that Patton Oswalt's like a clever, uh, mm, okay, like funny no, guy, no, funny knowing comedian. And so I, Whereas I don't know anything about Paul Walter Hauser. He mm-hmm. seems like a guy who was genuinely plucked from obscurity. While his performance in Big Fan, you feel that like he's not like really tied into it, but he knows what he's doing. Yeah. And the, the genuine frustration when his family's like, why don't you sue the guy? Why don't you do this? And he's like, no, I'm just mm-hmm. like, just leave me alone. I'm happy with the way that it is. Mm-hmm. Whether that's good or bad, that's up to the interpretation of the viewer. But it's not shown as damaged, in my opinion. Before we move on to the next movie, I realize we neglected to mention Robin Williams in the opening discussion. That's right. Who's another of the definitive, like maybe actually even more so than Jim Carrey. Mm-hmm. Forget when I said Jim Carrey yeah. was the definitive example. I completely erased it from my mind because when we were talking about doing this episode Robin Williams was always on this list and it's like he needs his own episode we can't just do like Robin Williams in like a triple of these but it does feel like Robin Williams for it for a time at least was the most successful of these crossover Mm -hmm. like like because he won an Oscar for Goodwill Hunting he Mm -hmm. there was stuff like Awakenings and the Fisher King where he's funny but you know yeah like Robin Williams is a guy that like in a lot of dramatic performances though he could bring that Robin Williams energy because like something like you just said the Fisher King, that's just a Robin Williams style performance or Good Morning Vietnam right. with elements of drama that are interjected. I mean, that's not the case with Awakenings or uh, Goodwill Hunting. Goodwill yeah. Hunting, which is like the Jim Carrey, like, all right, let's take all those comedic things and like subdue them. And that's where the drama comes from. I think perhaps more interesting than those performances are his performances in One Hour Photo and Insomnia, mm-hmm. where they sort of play in more to the vulnerability of yeah. him. Like there's something about Robin Williams has this like big wide open face mm-hmm. um, and he is so desperately needy as a comedian that you know as I said earlier uh, laughter and tears are two sides of the same coin so that's we- what my dad taught me when we were touring the boards <laughs> <laughs> so we mentioned um, the baggage you bring to a comedian and we watched Blue Collar which has Richard Pryor in the center of it and what's interesting about our discussion about him is I don't think you have that much Richard Pryor baggage and I don't either oh, I'm, I'm actually I would consider myself a fan of Richard Pryor I mm-hmm. went through a Richard oh, Pryor did you? phase so you're for like, a hot minute earlier so, uh, I, see no evil hear no evil <laughs> silver streak I mean, uh, moving not so much the comedy movies but I got kind of into his stand up mm-hmm. uh, for a while and you know some of his concert movies and uh, you know, there's a scene earlier, early in Blue Collar, which is sat at a uh, auto plant, and it's about, uh, you know, three workers, Richard Pryor, 
um, uh, Harvey Keitel and Yafet Kodo and uh, the, the troubles with the powerful union. Yeah, they decide to rob the union. Yeah. That is like the central hook of the movie. And essentially you realize that the union is this is this scheme to keep uh, the people pitted against each other. Yeah, so don't form unions, guys. That, well, yeah, that's clearly what the movie's about. Don't <laughs> no, form. It, Paul Schrader even makes it clear in the like final freeze frame. He's like, it's not about that unions are bad. It's literally the corporations that right. are keeping like uh, things like unions under their foot. This has often been called a Marxist film, mm-hmm. which I think Schrader himself disagrees with. Mm-hmm. But, you know, whatever. And so Richard Pryor's performance in this film is interesting because at the beginning, okay, you yeah. feel like you're going to get like big comedy Richard Pryor, and it's like a very very uh, smart gambit to start it that that's way. That's the thing. Yeah. It's that scene at the union meeting mm-hmm. where he gets up and he starts he riffing. Chick- yeah. And it it's, seems like one of his comedy routines. Mm-hmm. And if you've ever seen his stand-up, you'll know what a kind of explosive uh, live wire presence he is. Uh, he always, in his stand-up, seems kind of on the edge of sanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he brings a lot of that, I think, to this movie. And what's interesting about the plot is that as it goes along, Richard Pryor, as a presence it keeps stamping down on that explosive kind of live wire energy till like a big kind of final monologue between him and Harvey Keitel. Mm -hmm. When you almost get a sense that like he's been kind of been broken in a way and he's had to accept the reality of the world that they live in now. And so you're not going to get that big funny Richard Pryor anymore. And I think that's like, beautiful casting and a beautiful performance from Richard Pryor to like play on those levels. Mm. Pryor is also another one of those comedians again where the the sadness always seems mm-hmm. just like very beneath the surface like even when he's at his funniest it looks like he could crumble at any minute and of course in his stand up he would make his own personal demons and tragedies from his difficult upbringing to his struggle with drugs mm-hmm. you know he, he would make that fodder for his comedy he was sort of like frankly the anti Bill Cosby mm-hmm. who obviously personal life aside yeah you know bill cosby was almost like this teflon who was Mm. telling these friendly jokes about his family and being a dad and stuff uh whereas richard pryor is like this kind of like open wound Mm -hmm. on stage and in blue collar you get that perfectly and you also get it in a movie that i only realized today he had co-starred and i completely forgotten lady sings the blues oh yeah which was a big performance for him as well yeah i mean richard pryor like jumped around a lot as a comedian and a dramatic actor but i think he's mostly remembered for his comedies these days yeah there also seems to be something in his career where he eventually stopped taking risks Mm -hmm. and i mean i think pretty much anything he did after i want to say like you know any movie he made after like 1980 is just bad Mm. um yeah definitely increasingly mercenary comedies i feel like he he probably felt the intense competition from eddie murphy at that time right uh, i think eddie murphy has said as such mm-hmm. as much in, yeah that he kind of wanted to shut him down too because at that time like you could only have one black man in mm. entertainment i think that he says that uh, eddie murphy says it recently in that like comedians getting that's uh, it yeah, yeah with jerry seinfeld yeah 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 so the third movie that we watched was ordinary people and this was a last minute edition i'm like ah what are we gonna do uh ordinary we, people we were interested in doing something uh with a woman first yes of all, and also something that wasn't just an obvious choice like Good Morning Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And I, I had never seen Ordinary People. I had never seen Ordinary People either. And I'm not very familiar with Mary Tyler Moore as a comedian either. So neither am I. I think she's 
obviously best known for two TV shows. Yeah, the Dick Van Dyke show. And the Mary Tyler Moore show. Mm. I don't know. I don't think she was ever a stand-up. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe she was. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, I should have should have looked that up before. <laughs> I did watch an episode <laughs> of the Mary Tyler Moore show just to get her comedic chops. Uh, I have never once seen the Mary Tyler Moore show, but I have seen, uh, you know, a fair number of episodes of the Dick Van Dyke show. In what context did you watch that? Uh, just uh, as a fan? like You know, I loved Dick Van Dyke as a kid, mm-hmm. so I had a public domain VHS of oh, some, Dick Van Dyke shows. Okay. And I think I've also stumbled on them, you mm-hmm. know, on TV occasionally. And it's a nice, pleasant show. So as a kind of comedic personality, what I've gotten from the very few things that I watched that she starred in is kind of like almost as like suburban housewife, but like a big presence on screen. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In the Dick Van Dyke show, yeah. she's this very supportive, mm. friendly um, housewife. And in the Mary Tyler Moore show, she's very independent and she's kind of like moving like a bullet. She's a strong woman. She throws Throw her their hat. hat in the air. Yes. Right. As we've all seen in The Simpsons, of course. The other thing I know about my, Mary Tyler Moore is uh, my dad met her in an airport lounge. Really? Uh, did he go up to her? 30 years ago. Uh, they did. They did talk. And the story that he has often told <laughs> is she opened her peanuts and she spilled it everywhere and she was picking up and she said, well, you must just think I'm, I'm, I'm really silly. And my dad's <laughs> said that he was speechless at that moment because he couldn't believe that Mary Tyler Moore was uh, apologizing to him for something. Uh, doing comedy. And your dad has probably um, equipped this story at so many dinner parties. I did hear this story <laughs> semi-regularly growing up. Uh, I thought it was neat. You know? Yeah, that's a good story. Yeah. It's like, even the clowns are humans too, <laughs> Will. <laughs> so yeah, Ordinary People was a movie for which she was Oscar nominated. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was indeed the best picture winner that year. And it's most Mostly known uh, in this day and age as the movie that beat Raging Bull as best picture. So, you know, as film bros, yep. uh, or at least me as a film bro, mm-hmm. I've always, I guess, filed this movie away in my head as being, oh yeah, that's mediocre Oscar shit. They, mm-hmm. they robbed Marty. <laughs> that's right. Uh, Robert Redford, you know, some actor who became a hack director mm-hmm. making, you know, Lions for Lambs. <laughs> oh, that's right. Um, quiz show, man. Yeah, that yeah, quiz show, the other one. Um, so I, I went into this movie finally, and I gotta say, it's it's really good. It's really good. <laughs> <laughs> And that just goes to show you how you can't let the Oscars infect any part of your thinking. <laughs> yeah. Because so, like the Oscars got it right that year, well, but it's the opposite effect on you. Well, here's the thing. I, I don't actually think the movie's better than Raging Bull necessarily. May, oh, yeah. maybe you do. Uh, Raging but, Bull. But I also think putting them together, yeah, I, you know. The thing about Raging Bull is that like it's such a like film bro movie, like you said. Like it's got like angry men doing angry men thing. And it's also got the crazy stylish boxing scenes. Oh, so good. <laughs> and ordinary people doesn't have that stuff. In fact, it's like so restrained in its direction. It's Bergman-esque. Yeah, exactly. And actually watching it, I thought this is so much more like serious than most Best Picture winners. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, put it up against, I don't know, I haven't seen Spotlight. Green Book. <laughs> yeah, Green well, Book. Okay, it's a lot fucking better than Spotlight. <laughs> it is, yes. Just on every level. And just watching it now, I, I think that because it falls within that idea of like, oh, all those films were coming out around that time, like Kramer versus Kramer. Like, they've just kind of been cemented as like these lame kind of straight down the middle choices. When Ordinary People, and we'll get to Mary Tyler Moore's performance as well within the context of this, is like such a complicated film without any easy answers. Yeah, so <laughs> it's about a suburban family that that's right, folks. It's the original American Beauty. Mm-hmm. You've got <laughs> father, Donald Sutherland, mother, Mary Tyler Moore, and son, uh, Timothy Hutton. Yep, Timothy Hutton. That's right. The youngest Academy Award winner for acting at that time ever. Tw- 20 years 20 old. 20 years old, yeah. Um, and it's... 
it's a family that is recovering from the traumatic death of the other son mm-hmm. who died in a boating accident while on the boat with Timothy Hutton. And the brilliant thing about the movie, which is also based on a novel, is it starts a long time after the son died. Mm-hmm. And it's not really about like, how do these shell-shocked people get over the death of a loved one? In the moment, it's more like, how do you keep surviving with that knowledge and the kind of guilt of that loved one? Once all the family and friends have kind of stopped caring, and it's mostly turned into more of an annoyance. Like, why don't they just get over it? Like, it's past already. Yeah, and what happens when, as a family, you just uh, are have never been equipped never mm-hmm. been trained to communicate any emotions beyond this is fine so mary tyler moore in this film is the mom and the mom that she's playing is such a tough act because she needs to be cold and distant but you don't want her to be the villain either in the right. picture and i think that she strikes a perfect balance as not seeming like a craven kind of like why don't you just get better and you're like oh, i hate her so much That's when right. you're like like she even says it herself that she vocalizes like I'm not that kind of person like I can't say these things and get close in that way that's not how I operate and you feel the intense weight that she's under Mm -hmm. uh, as somebody who is as the homemaker as the um, the social outward face yeah, of the family. Yeah, she has. Yeah, she has to represent the family. Mm-hmm. She 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 has to be. Yeah, the person putting a good face on everything. Like at one point, she's speaking to her mother, and she's like, "Oh yeah, you know, Timothy Hutton. He's seeing a psychiatrist again." And she's like, "What again? Mm. Like, isn't this over by now? Can we move on?" Right. Played by the great Judd Hirsch, <laughs> another comedian who had mostly been known for Taxi at that point, mm-hmm. the TV show, coming in and doing a dramatic role, which is really fascinating because it's not the kind of like, oh, he's a good guy psychiatrist that you think he'll be. No, he's, he's a like a real ass. psychiatrist. Yeah. And uh, a lot of actual psychiatrists pointed to Ordinary People as one of the only films to not like negatively show the profession oh. as like a joke, but actually showed like what a real session would probably be like. Yeah, I mean, at this time, I mean, when I was a kid, pretty much all depictions of psychiatry were like, oh, it's a crazy person. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or and now who isn't in therapy? I mean. <laughs> or it's like, oh, it's just a quack. He can't actually help you. Why don't you just get over it yourself? Right, and right. This actually shows that like, it's not going to be a simple process either, that there's not going to be one break and it'll be over which is very um sadly pointed out when oh, a character commits suicide at one point i assume that with mary tyler moore much of the audience watching this movie would have been following her since the 1950s mm-hmm. and her presence here would have been weighted with a lot of significance and uh it would have been perhaps uh shocking maybe even upsetting mm-hmm. in some way for people to watch her in, it's in this especially that she is in the context that people would know her, like the sitcom family unit. Yeah. <laughs> like that's where Mary Tyler Moore like made her bread and butter in like the Dick Van Dyke show. And I get the sense that she probably wasn't taken especially seriously as an actress before this. Mm-hmm. I mean, any more than Dick Van Dyke was taken seriously <laughs> yeah, as an actor. Right. Yeah. And, but like the acting that she does in this movie is so subtle and so difficult. And mm-hmm. also, especially at the end, so moving yeah. when like choices are made yeah. that it's, you know, a shame that she wasn't able to kind of propel this into, like, actual, like, dramatic work in movies like Ordinary People. Like, if you look at her filmography, she kept acting, but, like, in the Lincoln TV movie and yeah. stuff like that. Did she play Mary Todd? Uh, yeah, she did play Mary yeah. Todd, of course. But, like, you do have a performance here, and it's not the one that often gets talked about in the movie. I think that, like, Timothy Hutton has, like, the showy part. Mm-hmm. Judd Hirsch as well, because he's kind of, like, you know, the calming figure mm-hmm. and you also have donald uh sutherland doing his donald sutherland thing yeah, he's great <laughs> he's great in the movie yeah. and for anybody who's like Ugh, american beauty 
uh, I would recommend watching this film. <laughs> yeah, because unlike American Beauty, there are no there are no kind of cheap shots. Mm-hmm. It's not really about oh the suburbs as a as an institution. Yeah, or, or an awful. Thing. And I just need to make this realization to keep going. No, the movie's about like life is really complicated and, and things change. And it's like the Annette Bening character in American Beauty is a horrible like caricature compared yes, to. Yes, she's a joke. <laughs> yeah, compared to. You know, the empathetic, uh, difficult mm-hmm. Mary Tyler Moore character. But I think that someone that wasn't her, she could they could have played it easily as a villain. Yeah. Like, even with the material that she had. Yeah. But, you know, just the choices that she makes. And she never goes for any laughs either. Mm-hmm. Like, out of all the actors we've talked about in this episode, um, in uh, Big Game, Patton Oswalt, Richard Pryor, there's laughs in them, but they never, like... It's never like uh, Good Morning Vietnam, where they get to be mostly funny, and then, you know, it also gets serious when a bomb goes off. Right. These are like purely dramatic performances across the board. So, uh, what did we what did we learn? Uh, we learned that drama is a more serious thing than right. comedy. <laughs> and we learned that Ordinary People, great movie. It's actually good. Check yeah. it out. So, right. do, do we have any letters this week? We do have letters. Uh, our first letter is from Carlos, and he goes... Hey, it's me again with some more questions. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Welcome in. Uh, Uh, Can I make you a seat? Uh, (laughs) I I have a blanket here if you want to stay over. Listen, you were not invited. (laughs) I'd like you to leave, please. Uh, The first question goes, I remember in an earlier episode, Will said that his opinion on Pauline Kael worsened after the episode you did on her. Will you guys ever revisit Pauline Kael given Will's new opinion on her? No. Okay, so first of all, I don't think my... I did say that. Yes. Uh, I say a lot of things on this podcast. <laughs> yes. I, I don't... Oh, wait, can I just interrupt here? Is that sometimes people will, like, tell us something that we said ages ago, <laughs> and, like, we have completely forgotten. <laughs> I, I will say that my opinion of Pauline Kale probably has not improved over mm-hmm. the years. Uh, I think she's particular... She really gets her tender hooks in you, I think, when you're a teenager. Yes. And I... I think I say it on the episode that we did on her. I did not read her when I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. I read her when I was in college and at that point I was like man she's so mean (laughs) like there wasn't that discovery that a lot of people had of like oh look at this passion and look at this kind of like turn of phrase I mean it was kind of exciting for me as a teenager to read Pauline Kael and think that film criticism could be an art form Mm -hmm. like like oh this is different from those Leonard Maltin capsule reviews this is taking a movie and using it to create your own piece of art but but also by the way I think that speaks to her limitations somewhat because uh, when I read her reviews, there are these kinds of, um, you know, beautiful performances, but mm. they don't pr- really enlighten the movie for mm. me. Yeah. Like, they, they seem to be about something else other than the movie. <laughs> Never it's forget. Her, her pirouetting on the page. Uh, her um, takedown of Paul Schrader because he, uh, she felt he had betrayed her. Uh, well, that has my favorite Pauline Kaye line, which is, uh, for Schrader to call himself a whore would be vanity. He can't even turn a trick. That really hurt um, Paul Schrader's feelings, too. Why yeah. wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I think think that they made up like near the end of her life is yeah. what i hear yeah uh, so- I, I will say that i do feel ridiculous criticizing pauline kale as like a, a dope with a podcast <laughs> uh, I, I i acknowledge that she is a brilliant uh a crafts person and uh had a very was a very original thinker just i'd, I'd rather read uh roger ebert <laughs> You know what? Maybe. So Carlos's second question is, do you guys think the internet has a negative impact on film criticism? Personally, I would say no, because most so-called film criticism online doesn't have much substance, but nitpicking Collins' cliche and pointing out my new details. On the flip side, there are some really good people on YouTube, like Lindsay Ellis, who make great in-depth video essays on film. I guess it's a mixed bag. Uh, Yeah, I would say that YouTube has fostered 
you know, many different kinds of film criticism and the internet has also, I mean, if we're, if we're going back to the glory days of the eighties, it would be like, yeah, there were more newspaper critics, most of whom were bad. Yeah, they um, were mostly bad. Yeah, and and of course, there's more film criticism than ever. Much of it is bad, bad. Uh, but much of it is uh, good and interesting. Uh, the great thing about the internet is that uh, because everything has been deplatformed, I'll get into the, this a little bit later, is that like you don't have to read a review and go, oh, okay, so I guess this is the gospel because it's published in like a the, million newspapers. It's a, yeah, it's in the Toronto Star or the yeah, Globe and yeah. Mail or whatever. And you're like, huh, is my opinion wrong? I mean, the extreme of that is like, oh no, I'm going to find someone that only reflects my stuff. But anybody who loves film will find people they agree with and they disagree with, but they like reading their stuff anyway. You know, the other thing about the internet is I think it has really broadened people's horizons of what what they can see and what is available. Mm -hmm. So if all you had was the, the newspaper reviews on Friday or you know Siskel and Ebert on TV yeah. or whatever you would have a limited understanding of what was available no disrespect to Siskel and Ebert who of course sought to spotlight lesser known movies also but with the internet people... you have the important cinema club exactly. who can introduce you to people like Andy Milligan <laughs> yeah exactly yeah you know what definitively the internet has been good because we emerged from it I would only say that the negative thing about the internet is just look at the current local Toronto Star as an example well that is sad that mm-hmm. the Toronto Star and its movies section Mm. Uh, i think peter howell got a buyout and uh now they're running like just associated press kind of reviews which is worth nothing in my opinion well if you're if you're gonna you know just run american wire copy why even have a movie section yeah nobody cares i think that the good thing about the internet or the newspapers like someone like pauline kales that people like to go see one person's opinion of things. Because then, if you know that person, you've read a lot of their likes and dislikes, you can get like a well-formulated idea of why they approach this thing in that way. And I also think people, even if they don't think they do, people understand that. I think in the 90s, for example, when... Peter Howell and Jeff Pavere were the critics for the Toronto Star. Ugh, love Jeff Pavere. <laughs> uh, people may not really have understood who they were, but they would have mm-hmm. understand that the Toronto Star had a certain institutional voice and identity. Mm-hmm. And so a Toronto Star review meant something distinct from, say, a Globe and Mail review. And now, none of that, because it's been completely cut. Yeah. <laughs> How expensive could it be to keep one person on staff to do that? Uh, no idea. That's definitely people in a boardroom being like, what can we cut to save money? It's also so tacky to have a newspaper that's like, 50% American Wire copy. Garbage. I mean, at that point, just don't have a movie section. <laughs> yeah. Know? When was the last time I picked up a Toronto Star to read it? Listen, I don't want the Toronto Star to go out of business. They've done good <laughs> things over the years. Yeah, I got to click on the article I want to read and hit escape really fast. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so the paywall doesn't come up. Yeah. Uh, I believe the Toronto Star, or maybe it was the Globe and Mail, I did subscribe to their web content, and I had to call to unsubscribe. They wouldn't let me unsubscribe wow. by the internet. That's so That's humiliating. torturous, yeah. Man, when Rob Ford was mayor, that's when I was at my peak of reading Toronto newspapers. Yeah, so was I. Yeah. What's new on the classic blogs like torontoist.com? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, so... On our Patreon this week, we're talking about a topic that's been much requested, Leslie Nielsen. Because this episode is about comedians who went dramatic, so we decided, let's do a dramatist who became a comedian. Yeah, that was my thinking. Wink. (laughs) So, we watched his 1998 classic, Wrongfully Accused. (laughs) Yep. Did we like it? Did we love it? Does it hold up for an old Will and Justin? Well, you're gonna have to pay $5 a month to get on our Patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club to find out. Next week, Will, what are we doing? 
We are talking about Stanley Kramer. That's right, folks. We are looking at the issues. One of the great auteurs of Hollywood, right? Just the spruce goose of filmmakers. (laughs) You know, big and heavy, and he gets a couple of centimeters off the ground, and then he (laughs) He goes right back. back Uh, So we're going to watch, I guess, Judgment at Nuremberg. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe I'll watch The Defiant once. 95 minutes. Yep. But But you know we got to watch. I'll tell you what we're watching. We're watching... What happens when a big-time drama director decides to make a comedy? He makes the biggest comedy in the world. <laughs> it's a mad, 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 mad world. Yeah! Wait, why isn't that playing at the um, Cinema Dome in Toronto? <laughs> yeah. That's what... I, it's probably because nobody who's still alive likes it. It plays in L.A. all the time. Because it was one of the few Cinerama movies. Yeah, and I don't think that... Has the Lightbox, they do the 70 millimeter presentation every holiday season. Have they ever played It's a Mad? They must I have at some point. I don't think they've ever played It's a Mad, Mad, <laughs> Let's Mad. Let's bring Mad it back. Models. All right, All I'm excited. Comedians. Because Will on Letterboxd gave it one and a half stars. But you loved it when you were a kid. Yeah, so as I look back at that Letterboxd review, which I wrote like three years ago, mm-hmm. I realized that there may have been some fervor of, of apostasy there. <laughs> because I did love this movie as a kid. Because mm. it was three hours of, you know, people falling over paint cans and getting their heads hit in 70 millimeter yeah all your favorite stars like jimmy durante mickey rooney (laughs) mickey rooney uh, buddy hackett the three stooges for one shot jerry lewis as well for one shot that's right uh lots to enjoy Uh, i'm excited to dive in i have never seen it past the first 30 minutes wow (laughs) because i think um, it takes a long time to rev up (laughs) yeah and then even then like the spruce goose it only gets a couple of feet off the ground (laughs) i've probably seen the simpson parody enough time to like fill like three it's a Mad, mad, mad world. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm looking forward to that. Stanley Kramer. And until then, my name is Glue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Just want to remind people that the Blu-rays for Local Legend and Thundering Mantis from Gold Ninja Video are still available at goldninjavideo.com. If you like commentaries, making of, bonus features, secret features, liner notes then you should really pick these releases up. Especially one like Local Legend, where I worked with the writer-director of the film, Matt Farley, to craft new special features. So again, you could pick those up at goldninjavideo.com. I'd also like to thank some of our new Patreon subscribers, like Primrose Path, Jackson Mello, Alex Colesmith, Party with Pizzy, Buddy Cattell, and Marcus Rose. Thank you so much for becoming Patreon subscribers. We couldn't keep doing this without you. And finally, I'd just like to say, please, if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and write us a review. We really appreciate it. It helps other people find the podcast, and it's so valuable to get the word out there. And if you've already done that, share us on Twitter or on Facebook or on Instagram or whatever is your favorite social media platform. Just screaming out in the streets. And now, back to the podcast. Kirk Douglas died. Yes, he did. Uh, Kirk fucking Douglas! Um, and the minute he died, I was, of course, searching Natalie Wood mm-hmm. and trying to find, okay, so is, is it true? Is it true? Is it true? Is the Natalie Wood family going to say? Is mm-hmm. they going to say? Are they they did say? not. They have not said, which, you know what that means? Kirk Douglas innocent. <laughs> you think that's what it means? <laughs> well, so, I, I mean, I think, you know what else is really funny? Mm-hmm. It's a couple days after Kirk Douglas died. I mean, that's not very funny, but no, I understand. Okay, that's not funny. Yeah. But Michael Douglas then said, you know, one of my dad's last words to me was to say that he was endorsing Michael Bloomberg. <laughs> no!
he actually he actually said that. What? <laughs> Those are some shitty last words to go out on. Yeah. But you know, you remember the good times and when he broke the blacklist. Yes. When he made all those great films like Paths of Glory and uh, Diamonds with Dan Aykroyd. And uh, <laughs> what else was he in? Uh, oh, I was so, so the Bad and the Beautiful. Mm, I love the Bad and, and the Beautiful. What's another funny Ace in the example? Hole. Oh, Ace uh, in Billy the Hole. Wilder. Yeah. Holy shit, Ace in the Hole is fucking great. I mean, Kirk Douglas is such a larger than life figure. Uh, the true Charlton Heston. <laughs> what a, what a chin on that guy. Yeah, just, just an incredible chin craft. He, he, you know, when he's on the screen, uh, you can't look at anything else but that chin. Mm-hmm. And in Passive Glory, he's full of oh, righteous so good. anger. And, uh, you know, off screen. Uh, a terrible man, it sounds like. Well, you know, did he murder Gene Spangler? Uh, th- you know, that's just speculation. <laughs> probably, yes. <laughs> Maybe he did. He probably, well, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know anything about the Natalie Wood thing. I don't know yeah. how true it is. Maybe it's true. I mean, you can you just go look at, like, Kirk Douglas stuff. There's a lot of bad stuff. He lived to 103 years old. Yeah, that's crazy. You know what? This... You remember when they would wheel him out at award ceremonies? Oh, like, I felt so bad for him. He oh. had to do, like, speeches and stuff like that. Leave the you man be. He already had a stroke, too. Mm-hmm. So yeah. he was already a pretty old 104. Wait, so his last dying words were, I want to support Michael Bloomberg according to his son Michael Douglas well that's dementia that's yeah. that's that's you're facing uh, the void you, like Satan is reaching his claw out for you and you're just you're just spouting <laughs> words you heard for the first time that day because you're so afraid um, but this is the perfect opportunity to watch one of the great Kirk Douglas performances and I can't remember the title I hope you can Will okay. which is the one where it was Kirk Douglas Michael Douglas and then Michael Douglas's son oh yeah <laughs> I do remember that is it, it it runs in the family it runs in the family which is such a hilarious concept for a movie so what's funny about that is okay. he was arrested right after the movie came out Michael Douglas's son right so Kirk Douglas Michael Douglas sure that, that team up <laughs> makes logical sense but who's this third Douglas that they're trying to force onto the world (laughs) it's like chaz douglas or something like that yeah it's like oh i see what this is about Mm -hmm. i remember that was a big movie too like you got a big push it's like finally these heroes on screen together not since charlie sheen and his dad martin sheen that's on screen in wall street and also hot shots part two that's right (laughs) great joke uh, not since um, um, who who else had a fail son that they tried to <laughs> put into the world, uh, and that like the dad and the son were on screen yeah, together. I'm trying to think: Did Jerry Lewis ever make anything with Gary Lewis? Like, Wait, was uh, Gary Lewis an actor? I don't. Well, he was a pop star. Oh, what? <laughs> yeah, you never heard of Gary Lewis and the Playboys? <laughs> I have never heard of that. They no. had a couple of hits in the mid '60s. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I'm, yeah, he was the Chet Hayes of his day. <laughs> I mean, has Tom Hanks ever acted with Colin Hanks? He must have. Maybe, but I don't maybe think, not, though. I don't think he's ever acted with Chet Hayes. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> There's not enough, I feel, like, really great fail children of actors these days. Not yeah. like, it felt like the two from 2000 to 2010 was just like, <laughs> mm, it was ripe for that. Like, you got your Chet Hayes's, you had your uh, Will Smith's children. Oh, Jaden, yeah. Yeah, Jaden. Well, Jaden looked like he was going to be pretty big for a couple of Karate months. Kid. Yeah, that was then After movie. Earth, man. Yeah. <laughs> tanked, him, tanked it for him. Uh, yeah, are there any others? Uh, actors who had sons who... Or, or daughters that acted with them? Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, not any... I know, I know there are, but I'm just not thinking of them right <laughs> Yeah, now. me too. I'm just... My mind is taken up by It Runs in the Family. Well, they're all in that boat. And they're <laughs> <Yeah>. like... <laughs> 
It's like, who wouldn't want to see that? Well, there's Ice Cube's son, who looks exactly like well, he's Ice good, Cube. he's good, though. He is good. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. it's not technically a fail son. Yeah, yeah. I was just trying to think of examples. But I do feel that kind of dislike and, like, the pit of my stomach when it's, like, someone's child on screen. And that happens in India all the time. Like, yeah. all the big stars are all children of, like, Indian acting royalty. Well, I assume that every star right now is is some per- somebody's kid. <laughs> yeah, know, or so somebody's, some, like... Somebody, some studio executive or what yeah. have you. Uh, there's no joy when I hear, like, oh, this person is this person's brother or sister. It's like, oh, okay. Guess the world's pretty small. <laughs> yeah. You couldn't get anybody else. <laughs> All right, so let's go uh, to Base Speed Video, because I saw it run from the family in their bargain <laughs> discount <laughs> bin. <laughs> They're, they get, they're giving it away. <laughs> they're not giving it away. Okay. You got to pay that $2 okay. <laughs> to grab it. And we're going to listen to the commentary track. <laughs> <laughs> 